No, okay, now I am. Okay, <laughs> Pastor Scott is taking a trip down to Texas for the next two weeks to uh, take his daughter Hope, you all know Hope, uh, to uh, college. And so they're dropping them off, and uh, they'll be back in roughly nine or eight days, something like that. So I am filling in for the next two weeks. We've really had some bad planning here, though, because uh, he was doing a series through Ruth, and then he went on vacation, leaving uh, you know some of that unfulfilled, and then I came in and had to do a mini-series within his mini-series. And now he started Obadiah last week, and he hasn't concluded that yet, so now I've got to do another little mini-series within that mini-series. And so you guys, I know, are going to be thoroughly confused by the time we're done with you, but uh, we interrupt these, uh, <laughs> this Obadiah passage for Second Peter. We are going to be going through Second Peter over the next two weeks. We've got three chapters to cover in two weeks, and today we're just going to go through chapter one. So next week will be a much more abbreviated uh, treatment of chapters two and chapters three. But uh, 2 Peter is a book that I look forward to going through with you over the next couple of weeks because it is a book that has been highly ignored and uh, even scrutinized early on. Uh, some of the early church fathers rejected it as uh, an authentic writing of Peter. Uh, not many of them, just a couple here and there that thought that it was uh, a fake writing. Uh, but for the majority, most of them acknowledged that, no, this really came from Peter's hand. And if you weigh the evidence, it is uh, very convincing that, yes, Peter actually wrote this. There's some internal evidence that records like the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, it records some of the statements that Jesus made directly to Peter about his uh, impending death. And so because of those reasons, we can um, trust that this is a part of the canon of Scripture and that it was written by Peter, and uh, we're going to treat it as such. But I bring all that to your attention, not to put any doubt in your mind, but rather to uh, emphasize that this is a book that is worthy of our attention, and we should uh, turn to it often to read what Peter, a disciple of Jesus Christ, one of Jesus' closest disciples, has to say about the Christian faith. Um, I will start by reading the first three or no first two verses here just as an introduction to this book and Peter writes Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord so he writes to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours and ours meaning the disciples and the apostles and so what he's saying is those of you that have put your faith in Jesus Christ you have the same benefits as the disciples and apostles it's not like they achieve something greater than you achieve by your faith and that you're like a second class citizen in the kingdom of heaven but rather your faith has brought you in to the same body as the apostles your faith has united you to the same Christ as the apostles. And so the equal standing that it speaks of there is just making that clear that you recipients of this letter are not second class in the kingdom of heaven, but are right there next to them. And one day will inherit uh, the same kingdom that uh, the apostles will be in. And so that's uh, encouraging, but it points out that this was written to believers. Uh, so this morning, the primary target will be believers, but I hope that through hearing this, if you are not a believer this morning, that it will encourage you 
to inquire more about the faith and that you'll see the distinction between a believer and a non-believer and it will prompt you to pick a side uh, because we believe as Christians that uh, true salvation and the only way to have a right relationship with God is through Jesus Christ and that becomes very evident in this passage of scripture. Um, Because this is written to the saved, we will be having five points this morning following an acrostic. Uh, I think that's the right word. An acrostic meaning each letter of saved is a point. So S-A-V-E-D. If you have an outline this morning, you can kind of follow along with that acrostic. Um, If you're listening at home, then you'll just have to write it down. I think it'll appear on the screen. Uh, If we've coordinated that well, we are having some tech problems as usual. And uh, I I think it was a little better this service, but the microphones have been popping for no reason. All of them, not just one of them, all the microphones just pop, 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 pop. And uh, there's no rhyme or reason for it. We didn't change anything, uh, but that's what happens when Pastor Scott leaves. Everything, I I think he sabotages it so he'll look good, Uh, but (laughs) nonetheless, it, it falls apart. But I think it's going a little bit better, and so, God willing, we'll get through this without any more major technical issues. Uh, But sorry for those of you at home if that is the case. Uh, Let's begin in verse 3, then, as we look at the S in our acrostic. And uh, we're going to start by reading in verse 3. It says, His divine power, speaking of Jesus Christ, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I want to draw your attention to something in those two verses that I believe the author Peter was wanting you to draw your attention to. And it's the word granted. It appears twice in this passage. And usually if an author repeats a word, it's significant. And so it might be worthy of circling or highlighting. And the word granted there is basically gifted or, or provided or presented with. And when he's speaking here, he's saying that the power of Jesus Christ has gifted or granted this Uh, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so for those of you that are living in your sin, which is all of us, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, we are not by nature godly. That has not been the case since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. We are sinners, and so for us to be godly, it takes a gift from Jesus Christ. He has the power to grant that gift. No other resource can provide that for you. Only the person of Jesus Christ. And it says that he gives us all things that pertain to life. And what he means here is spiritual life. Because the day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the garden, uh, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that day they died. Now they did not die physically. They began to die physically. But spiritual death came upon them and is upon us all. The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. And because of that, we have no life in us. And dead people can't give themselves life. You can't resuscitate yourself. You can't give yourself CPR once you're dead. Okay, You have to have an outside source providing you with what you need to come back. And in most cases, that's impossible. 
You know, we've got the fibrillator, whatever that thing's called, shocking you back to life, trying to get your heart pumping again, and occasionally that works. Uh, but in the spiritual sense, there's only one thing that can provide you with life, and that is the power of Jesus Christ. He has granted that. Not only has he granted all things pertaining to life and godliness, but he repeats that word granted in verse 4, saying, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them we can be partakers of the divine nature, escaping the corruption of sinful desire in the world. And so you have promises from Jesus Christ that have been given to you. You don't earn them. They're just promised to you and handed to you. And we could sit here and talk for hours about the promises of Jesus. He makes lots of promises. And a lot of those may be kind of assumed in this passage, but I think there are particular promises that he's focusing upon. For one, the things he mentions here, he's promised you godliness. He's promised you eternal life. Uh, but beyond that, in the end of this book, he promises a second coming of Jesus Christ and that Jesus is going to return again. And so that's a promise that we can uh, count on. We can't make him come back. We don't deserve him to come back and take us. Uh, we only deserve his judgment because of our sin. But this is something that he's giving you despite what you've earned. He is giving it to you. And that's a very important thing that we need to know as believers. We need to be reminded of this. And if you're not a believer today, you need to understand this. That you cannot earn eternal life. You cannot earn the goodness of God in your life. It's not a partnership in salvation. It's not a 50-50 split. It's not even a 10-90 split. You know, sometimes we... Uh, think like that, especially maybe not in, in Baptist circles. We're pretty privy to that fact. That's sound doctrine for Baptists. Uh, but the casual uh, believer in God sort of thinks that you can earn your way to heaven. That if you do enough good deeds and they outweigh the bad, the scales will tip in your favor on judgment day. And then this guy named St. Peter is going to let you into the gate. And there you're going to be with your harp and your cloud. And that's going to be how the end of time fold, unfolds for you. But that's wrong. Even though that's the majority view among theists, that's wrong. And there are even uh, other denominations, uh, for one, like Catholic theologians embrace this idea that your works uh, play a part in your salvation. That's what separates Catholics and Protestants. Uh, the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther started that all because when he read uh, the just, just shall live by faith, and when he read, you know, Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace are ye saved through faith, he realized that not of works, you can't work yourself into the good favor of God because our works are constantly turned against him. There's not enough good in the world that could be done to earn our privilege and good standing with God. And he realized that it was a gift of grace, not a gift of works. And so it is all because of Jesus so the S in uh, our acrostic this morning stands for the sufficiency of Christ. This passage talks about the sufficiency of Christ. He is sufficient. He is the only way for us to have a right standing before God. Jesus Christ is the only one who can wash us of our sin. He's the only one who can take us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And you do nothing to participate in that. Dead people can't participate. Okay? There are times where we 
have gifts given to us, and sometimes they are partially earned. I got a partially earned gift this week. I was uh, tending uh, my neighbor's garden for him, and in, he didn't tell me he was going to do this. It wasn't part of the bargain. He didn't have to do this, but he gave me, uh, he was out on a boat, and he gave me some shrimp. And Yeah, I'm a shrimp. Everybody wants to be my friend now. Uh, yeah, these are delicious shrimp, and he gave them to me. But I don't know if he would have swung by and just given them to me had I not tended his garden for him while he's gone. I think it was like that buddy system, you help me, I'll bless you in return. Uh, he didn't have to. I didn't ask him to. We'd still be really good friends and good neighbors had he not. But he did bless me with that. Uh, but deep down inside, you know that there's a little bit of works that was involved in that. And don't view your salvation in the same light. Don't think that, you know, 1% of me has got to do this, this, and this, and then God does the other 99%. No, you are spiritually dead until Christ comes and he authors your faith. The Bible says that he is the author and finisher of our faith. He starts it, he completes it, he does everything in between. You do nothing, absolutely nothing. And that is very important for us to understand. We have no active role in coming from death to life. It is purely the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And we are merely a recipient. Uh, so those who let it come to them, you know, those who receive it, absolutely. Receiving it's not a work. It's not something that you've earned in any sense of the word. Um, but it is all by grace through faith. So the sufficiency of Christ is proclaimed here. It brings you into a divine nature. You can't give yourself a divine nature. But through faith in Christ, we are partakers of a divine. That means a godly nature. And you had lost like a spiritual uh, inner being. It was dead. And now Jesus Christ has come and he has given you his spirit, which is the source of your divine nature. And so now inside of you is that thing as a believer that compels you and propels you into righteousness and godliness. And it is provided solely through Jesus. But let's look at the next part of this passage, beginning in verse 5. Let's read this together. For this very reason, so because of all that I just said, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there is a lot said there, but he starts out by saying, add to your faith this, 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 and this. And then he says, make your calling and election sure. And so you might automatically be thinking, wait a minute, isn't that the opposite of what you just said? You just told me I did not have an active role 
and now you're telling me that there's all these things I need to do. And yes, I am telling you that. You do not have an active role in salvation, but you have a very active role because of salvation. Following salvation as a response to your salvation, it should propel you into works of righteousness. The same passage, Ephesians 2, that said, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The very next verse tells us that uh, we, were, we are the workmanship of God made for good works. So your works do not provide you with salvation. You do not work yourself into good standing with God. But because God has extended this gift of grace and has blessed you, in response to that, good works should flow from your life. Otherwise, it says here that you are ineffective and unfruitful. The Bible tells us in the book of Galatians that those who are believers have spiritual fruit. And these fruit, like uh, peace, joy, kindness, love, all that, all those fruits of the Spirit are natural for the believer. You should have those if you are rooted in Christ. If you are a, a vine, or if you're a branch attached to the vine of Jesus, then flowing from that vine and that branch should be the fruit that is born by the Holy Spirit. And if you do not have that fruit, if you do not have good works, then it goes back to what kind of faith do you really have? And we'll talk about that more in the next point. But the A that we are talking about in our acrostic for point number two is the active role of the believer. The active role of the believer. Think of it like this. If you were to go to a, a, a symphony or if you were to go to a football game, or whatever it is that floats your boat, you go to that, you're watching it, and they do something amazing. Maybe you're into like extreme sports, and someone rides a motorcycle up a ramp and does backflip and jumps through five flaming hoops into a shark-infested tank or something, and he gets out alive. When he pops out alive, you're like, Woo, yeah! Yeah, you're, you're responding because of how great that was. Or if someone runs off of a kickoff 100 yards for a touchdown through all the defenders, doing spin moves, juking and jiving and all that, and they get to the end zone, everybody in the stadium erupts in applause if it's the home team. And they're just wowed by that performance. Or in the symphony, maybe it's the cello piece that just sparks a, a, a note that moves you and you're moved to applause at the end. Whatever it is that you enjoy, things can happen that move you towards applause and to amazement. Okay, Jesus is doing that day in and day out, not only through his salvation, but through his continuing work in our lives. And so all these works that you're doing are nothing more than a response you didn't cause it, you're just actively engaging and participating in it. No one is clapping at the football player who ran through the defenders saying, wow, I did awesome there, look at me, look what I did. No, you know you didn't do it, he did it. He's the guy that's, you know, pumping iron every day. He's the guy that's sacrificing the donuts, you know, for healthier food, and you're not. You're just living vicariously through him. You're watching him do the work and you're applauding. But you do have to get up and applaud. 
And that's exactly what the Christian life is like. Jesus is doing the real work. God is doing the real work. But in response to that, it should move the Christian. If they truly believe in him and they're truly engaging in the work of God, they're really being worked upon by Jesus. He's really authoring and finishing your faith off. Then you should be moved to the applause, which is quote unquote Christian works or Christian fruit. All that say, as a believer, you have an active role, not in your salvation, but in your sanctification. And the word sanctification is just a theological word that describes this progressive movement of Christianity where we are becoming what we actually are. God looks at you as a believer and he sees no sin. Now you and I know better. I see your sin, you see my sin, and we certainly see our own sin. But God doesn't see it. He sees his son Jesus Christ and he sees perfection. And so while we are not actively perfect right now, we are actively partaking in the divine nature, shedding off this worldliness day by day, year by year, and we are becoming more like Christ, or at least you should be. If you are not, if you are on a downward spiral into greater and greater sin, you need to reevaluate your faith. It does not mean that you won't have lapses. You know, the Christian walk isn't just like this linear line that goes upward. Sometimes it has some ups and downs in our spiritual growth. But in the end, you know, like the stock market should be, you know, it might up and down, up and down. But, you know, over a 10-year period, it ought to be higher than what it was, uh, minus like COVID when it, you know, went way down. You know, but in general, it should be trajecting upward. And that's how your Christian walk should be as well. And so this is all in response to Christ. It is not passive. And there are some Christians that accidentally buy into passive theology. Uh, There's one particular theological viewpoint that's very popular. I hear people quote their slogan all of the time, even in our own church. And uh, it's called Keswick Theology probably haven't heard of that or maybe you have Uh, that is k-e-s-w-i-c-k it was born out of a place called keswick in england about a hundred years ago and it is a theology that has the slogan let go and let god maybe you've said it before i think i had said it before i really started to dive into what they taught Um, but while in salvation you don't even have to let go you're just pretty much not there, you're dead, Uh, but in your sanctification, in your Christian growth, you are not biblically supposed to let go and let God. The Bible doesn't teach you to get out of the way and let God do it all. The Bible tells you to get off the sideline and get in the game and participate and respond to the work of God in your life. It's the complete opposite of let go and let God. And if you've said that before, I know it was a harmless uh, saying. You probably don't even live Really, that way, you're probably still actively engaged in ministry and your spiritual growth. But the way that this all comes across uh, theologically, it's just, it's not biblical. That's why in the passage we just read, it says, For this very reason, make every effort, effort, that's work. Not let go and get out of the way. Get in there and work. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Okay, your faith is something you didn't work for. That's authored by Jesus. That's when you became a believer. You became spiritually alive. But supplement that life now. 
Now you are in the game. Now you're made alive. You can actually work for Jesus because he's made you alive in him. So now you get in there and you add to that faith virtue. Or maybe yours says uh, something like moral goodness. Uh, You are adding good works. You're starting to work because of your faith. You are adding to your virtue knowledge. You're adding to your knowledge self-control. Self-control is being uh, supplemented with steadfastness or perseverance and perseverance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And I don't know how, if Peter, when he's writing this, has some kind of progression in his mind. Uh, It could go something like this. Because you're a believer, now you need to be working. But if you're working... You need to have knowledge, because like in carpentry, you don't send an ignorant person in there with a hammer and saw and say, hey, build my house. Uh, They need to have some knowledge. Same thing with a new believer. Brand new Christian just gets saved. If you get saved today and you've not been in church, you don't know the Bible, you're going to feel inside like, wow, I'm saved now. I need to be out doing something. And that's true. You do. Uh, But there's certain things you do right away, and there are certain things you don't do because you don't have the knowledge yet. And so you train up to uh, perform certain tasks. Without the knowledge, you're kind of wreaking havoc. You know, a a kid who turns 16 and really wants to drive, you don't just throw him the keys and say, hey, you're passionate about that. I think this is going to work out for the better. No, you take them out on dirt roads, parking lots, and you make sure they're not going to kill themselves and everybody else. That's important. Same thing with our Christian walk. When you get saved, you've, you've got passion and motivation, but you might lack the methodology. The Christians that have been around for a while, it's usually the reverse. They got the know-how, they know what they're supposed to be doing, they've just lost their first love and they're not as passionate anymore. And so we need to like have some middle ground there where we have both the knowledge and the motivation to get out there and to work for Jesus Christ. But it is certainly not a passive uh, endeavor. You add to knowledge self-control, because what good does knowledge do if you're not controlled with it, if you don't use it properly? And what good is a well-rounded knowledge that is used properly through self-control if you don't have steadfastness or perseverance? Then it just fizzles out. It's like the seed that's planted on the stony ground where it springs up real quick, but then it dies out. We need, as Christians, perseverance. And the Bible says those who persevere to the end will be saved. One of the fruits of a true believer is that they will continue to persevere and continue to follow Jesus Christ uh, without fizzling out. The scriptures say, do not grow weary in well-doing. It is a lifelong ministry to follow Jesus and to work for Jesus. It is not something that you do and retire from after you've done it for 20 years. So find a place to plug in. Find a way to serve God. Find a way to use that knowledge and that moral goodness to serve the Lord. And then godliness is in this list. Godliness. How can you add godliness? This is like one of the pivotal virtues here. Because if anything you do is not aimed at God, it really isn't a righteous deed. Like you can do good deeds even as an unbeliever. Even an atheist can do good deeds, right? Uh, An atheist can pick up trash on the side of the road. An atheist can help uh, someone who's poor get groceries. An atheist can help someone uh, 
you know, trim their trees or whatever the good deed might be. They do good deeds all the time. They'll pull you out of the ditch if you're stuck in a snowbank. They'll do whatever uh, if it's a, just a good gentleman. But they may not believe in God, and so their good deeds are not aimed at God. And that's why the Bible says that even our righteousness is its dirty rags. Even our good deeds can be sinful. Uh, Romans, at the end of Romans, I believe in chapter 13, I think, uh, I'll have to go back and verify that, but says that um, whatever is not of faith is sin. So if it's not done from faith in God and for God because of our salvation, then the good deed really has no merit. It has no standing before God. It doesn't count, quote unquote, we might say. But a Christian, a believer in Christ is going to go out and do those good deeds, not just because humanity deserves to be treated well, but because people are made in the image of God and God has commanded us to. And so we do it in the name of God so that people will turn to God. And for that reason, it has eternal value. So godliness needs to be added to all those virtues we've discussed already. And then adding to that brotherly, love, uh, brotherly affection and love. We uh, turn our attention not only because uh, we want to focus at God and aim at God, but because we're aiming at God and men are made in the image of God, we turn our uh, aim towards humanity as well. And we serve them out of our love for God, out of our love and faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, more could be spent on that, but the point is we have a very active role. The third point is the V in saved, S-A-V, and V stands for the verification of faith. So in the same passage we just read, faith is the bedrock. It's the first one on the list. None of these things happen uh, apart from faith. You can't have godly action and godly knowledge and all of that that's aimed at God and aimed at mankind because of God if you don't have faith in God to begin with. And faith is verified by those good works. It's not created by good works. We covered that in point one. The sufficiency of Christ. He is all that we need for salvation. He is the author of the faith. But we verify that that faith is there when we have these good works. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my command commandments. And that the one who loves him will bear much fruit. If you have a love for Jesus, you will keep his commandments and you will bear much fruit. Not in perfection, but in perpetuity. You will continue to produce fruits and honor the commands of Jesus Christ. And if those things aren't present in your life, it makes you want to go back and reevaluate if the faith is real. James says it best in chapter 2. He says, faith without works is dead. And James is not teaching that you have to work for salvation. That is not what he's saying. He's saying a true faith has a true response, which is works. And if there's not really a faith there, then there won't be works there. I've used this illustration before, but if I tell you that the building is on fire or that there's a tiger in the room, uh, those who really believe that are going to head for the nearest exit. And those who don't believe the statement are going to chuckle and kind of look around, maybe peek over their shoulder just in case, but they've got no true response. Which, by the way, there's not a tiger in the room, uh, if you believe me. But our faith in Christ is trusting in something, trusting in Him 
trusting in his, uh, in his promises that he has granted us, and then there will be a response to those. That's how our faith is verified. That's why James writes what he, what he wrote. He also says that if you say that you've got faith without your works, he says, how are you any different than the devil and the demons? He believes in God. The demons believe in God. But there's no works there. There's no response except for more evil and more evil. So you say you believe, but believe is more than just acknowledging the existence of something. It's actually trusting and loving that person, Jesus Christ, and having that relationship that invokes a day-after-day response in your life towards those good works and towards those spiritual fruit that you bear. That is how our life verifies the faith that is in us. So this morning, that's a challenge to evaluate your faith. Are you a person of good works? I'm not asking if you're a person of perfection, but does your life characterize a godly person based on the scripture's depiction of one? And I hope the answer is yes. I hope the answer is humble. Yes, not perfect, growing, need the grace of God day by day, but it is there and other people will testify to that. And it's aimed at God. I love humanitarian efforts as much as the next guy, but really without Jesus being a part of the equation, it's all in vain. It comes and it goes. You feed a mouth, they're hungry the next day. And so I, I support those efforts. I, I am so happy that there are many people that take upon themselves the meeting those needs. But when you meet those needs as a Christian, it should be in the name of Christ because you can give them something that lasts eternally, not something that will be gone the next day. That's all a part of that faith. Point number four, the E in saved, is the effective work of pastoring. I believe this is found beginning in verse 12. So if you will read with me in verse 12. Peter writes, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Here, Peter is writing this second letter near the very end of his life. He knows Jesus has already predicted his death. He knows that it is imminent. He may even be writing from prison. And according to tradition, Peter is going to be crucified upside down on a cross. And before that happens, Peter feels this need. He is compelled to write this letter to stir people up. They may know everything he's already said here, but he's reminding them. He uses the word, I am reminding you of these qualities. He's telling them that again. Now, this is important for you to know as a Christian. I think a lot of people are abandoning church in this age of massive communication. A lot of people are falling away from church attendance, maybe not the faith, but church attendance, because they go to church and they don't learn anything brand new. They get reminded of things that they've already been taught before. And because we live in this digital age where we are obsessed with new information, we come to church and we get that story about Jesus dying on the cross again. 
And we get that story about the Holy Spirit coming in us again. And we get that story about the fruit of the Spirit again and again. And if you've been in church 40 years, I mean, you've heard it. You could preach it. But I want to point out here that that's not a bad thing. It's doing something inside of you. It may not be new information for your head to be pleased with and tickled with. But the reminders that you get from the pulpit, and not just from the pastor in the pulpit, but from the pastors in the congregation. You know, anybody that is doing this, that is encouraging someone else's faith by reminding them and stirring up inside of them these old truths, this old story that's been told time and time again. If you are engaged in that process, you are pastoring in a sense. And so when that happens... That is for your good. That's why God gave you pastors. That's why God gave you this uh, person that comes week in and week out to continuously remind you of the truths that you hold. And if you're bored with the gospel, that shouldn't be. Okay, because it's working. It's effectively working in your life. And if you could just see it from a different viewpoint, if you could see it afresh and take it in anew, I think that would be uh, a way that our churches would become more robust and more solid in their faith walk rather than someone who's just looking for new intellectual uh, pleasures, something new to the mind. And I love that as much as the next guy. That's why I'm a PhD student. I like to dig. I like to see the original languages and I like to look at theological truths that have been buried for years and dig them back up. That's my forte. That's what I love. But I can't get tired of the simple fact that Jesus looked at me and saw a sinner and said, I'm not content with him, Greg Crawford, being separated from the Father for eternity. So I'm going to go down to earth. I'm going to take on the lowliest person and I'm going to live a righteous life and die on the cross and rise from the grave three days later so that he can have eternal life. I can't get bored of that. We can't get tired of that message. And so the reminders come weekend and week out. And it's for your benefit. Sometimes I get tired of eating the same old meal. And we, had, we made a lot of tacos uh, a couple of weeks ago for friends that came over and we cooked way too much taco meat. So we had tacos that night. We had tacos for lunch the next day. We had tacos for dinner. We had tacos for lunch the next day. I think we were having tacos for breakfast. You know, it was taco, 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 taco. And uh, you know, I love tacos as much as the next guy, uh, but after a while, you know, you know, Thanksgiving's going to come around. It's going to be turkey, 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 and I love turkey as much as the next guy, but after a while, it's like this again, but just because I'm bored of the taste, I can't forget the fact that it's, uh, it's doing something inside of me. It's providing me the nutrients that I need uh, and the energy I need to stay alive. It's providing me uh, you know, if I was a kid, it'd be providing me with what I needed to grow. Uh, as an adult, it provides me a different kind of growth sometimes that I'm not actually wanting. But the fact is, it is working inside of me to do what it's supposed to do. And that's true with the gospel. Every time you hear that Jesus died on the cross for you and you hear that explained in a different way, that is doing something inside of you spiritually and it's creating this growth that you're not even consciously and cognitively aware of. But it's working. And so keep coming. Keep opening your ears and being receptive to this reminder. 
Which, by the way, uh, the work of a pastor is sometimes difficult because we really want to be effective in what we say. Um, but sometimes we just don't know if we're being effective. And, and that will be true with every pastor in the world. So when Pastor Scott gets up here and Pastor Scott preaches and proclaims the good news to you week after week after week, and if he's moving you spiritually, I would encourage you to let him know about that. As one of my former pastors used to say, uh, saying like amen or uh, saying that, you know, telling the pastor that you've encouraged them spiritually, that's like saying sick them to a bulldog. Okay, it's very encouraging to a pastor. We don't want to hear necessarily like, hey, good job. You really had a good speech today. Yeah, who cares? Don't care about that as much. What we care about is that we are doing what we've been called to do and we're moving you closer to Jesus. And so if your pastor has ever moved you closer to Jesus, I encourage you to let him know. You will make his day. And uh, so I'm thankful that I've had pastors that have stirred me up. Um, that same pastor that said the sick him to a bulldog thing, when I first entered ministry, he would take me along on his visits. He would bring up theological questions for me to wrestle with. And he was just a great man of God. And I've been blessed with many pastors over the last 10, 15 years uh, that have poured into my life, Pastor Scott being one of them. I'm so thankful uh, to have him in my life. And, you know, I, that's, he's who I want to be when I grow up. Okay, and I can prove it. Okay, I've called to the ministry just like he was called to the ministry. He pastors at College Heights Baptist Church. I pastor at College Heights Baptist Church. He had two kids early on in the marriage, and then one like seven years later. I had two kids early on, and now I'm having one seven years later. He lives on Mooseberry Avenue. I live on Mooseberry Avenue across the street. He drives a white Chevy Silverado. I just bought, as of two days ago, a white Chevy Silverado. I'm trying to find a way that I can grow like a foot taller and have some hair. I will be Pastor Scott, okay? I know it's creepy. It's not intentional, I don't think, unless subconsciously Freud could tell me something that's going on there, but... Uh, I can think of a lot of people that I would not want to be. Pastor Scott's not one of them. I love that pastor. Uh, and so encourage him. He's a good one. In fact, next year, I think he'll be uh, celebrating 25 years, quarter century of dedication to this church. And so hope we find a good way to celebrate that when it comes around. The final point this morning is the D in saved which is dependence upon the word of God. Peter is stirring people up, and he's stirring people up by pointing them to the word of God. Let's read the conclusion in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in this final section... 
Peter points to the fact that he and the other apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus. They stood on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is alluded to here, and God spoke from the Holy Mountain as Jesus was lit up like a Christmas light, glowing and shining in a glory that was revealing what would look like at the end of time when Revelation tells us that there will be no sun, but the light will come radiating from the Son of God. They saw a glimpse of that and they heard God speak from the heavens saying, this is my beloved Son. This is the way to salvation. This is the way to the Father. And as a result of that, these eyewitnesses have written these things down. Holy men of God, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote down what God intended them to say. Don't doubt your scripture. This is the anchor for our soul. These are the words of life. This is better than seeing a miracle. Some people say, I believe in God. If only I could see a miracle. God, just reveal yourself to me. He did that. He raised Lazarus from the dead and the people wanted to stone Jesus and Lazarus and kill him again. Don't tell me that if you just do a miracle, then you believe. Because seeing is not believing. We see things all the time that we don't believe. You know, my dad always points this out. We went to the mall one time and there was this water spigot floating in the air up top and water was coming out of it. And it was real water and they're like, yeah, touch it. And you touch it and there's water coming out of it. But there's no pipe. It's just floating up there. And my dad's like, I see it, but I don't believe it. And come to find out, you know, you stick your hand far enough in there, you got a little tube going up, so the water's actually going up and then flowing on the outside of it. So it's an optical illusion. Um, but right off the bat, before you knew the trick, you saw it, but you didn't believe it. And there are ma magicians who do all kinds of amazing sleight of hand things, and you're like, I see it, but I know that lady's not cut in half. She'd be screaming. But she's just wiggling her fingers and smiling. You see it, but you don't believe it. And that's what would happen if a miracle was done, but you don't have a faith that was authored by Jesus Christ through the living word. We have a more sure form of prophecy here in the written word. So there are things today that compete for the position of authority in your life. One of them being science. And I love science as much as the next guy. But the scientists will tell you that there's no God. Most of them. The scientists will tell you that this is how man came to be. It wasn't man created in the image of God. They evolved. And scientists will tell you a lot of things. And it keeps changing. The age of the earth, earth has changed many times. Whether you could eat the egg or not has changed many times. Uh, you know, what kind of diet we should eat. You think something as simple as that, like what do I need to put in my body to be healthy? You think that would be just an easy to figure out scientific equation. But it's not. You can go out and get different books that say different things. I even saw this guy that's a scientist now advocating for the high carb diet. So I'm like, wow, we're just all over the place here. You think after thousands of years we would know what's healthy and what's not. But science is always on the move for most stuff. I mean, gravity still 9.82 meters per second squared. There are things that stay the same, but a lot of the science is constantly on the change, not the scriptures. God is the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God has always had the plan before the foundation of the world that Jesus would be the way that men and women would find redemption. That is not going anywhere. 
In fact, I have an eschatological view that holds that to be true. And so I don't care if there's a new temple built somewhere else or if Israel does something. We're not going back to a sacrificial system, people. It is Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world for all time, and that will never change. I stand firm on that. Um, The Word of God makes that clear. Politics tries to vie for position in there. And so while the Word of God tells you to love your enemy and love your neighbor, politics tells you to shred them if they don't agree with you. But yet, one politician's view today will be completely different in 10 years. Almost every one of them. I don't care which position, which side of the fence they're on. They change as the world changes because they're trying to get elected. You don't have any politicians standing out there saying, I think we should get rid of the cars and get back to the riding the donkeys or the horse and carriage. They're not going to do that. Even if they believe it, they're not going to say it because they've changed. But Jesus Christ is still the same and the word of God still points to him as the savior of the world. There are social movements that come and go and some of the things that were socially like popular 10 years ago are now called evil today. And the things that are called good today will be evil tomorrow. And that's just the way it unfolds because it's a changing paradigm, constantly on the move, but not the word of God. And that's why I encourage you this morning to be grafted to Christ with your faith, accepting his grace gift that is bestowed upon you and manifest to you through the written word, a more sure prophecy than what you're ever going to get from any other source in the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for your word. And as we conclude our service today, we pray that you would bless us and that you would use these words as a reminder to stir us up and to, um, to help us work out that faith that you've challenged us to do. Help us to make our calling and election sure. Lord, help us to be active participants not passive bystanders when it comes to living out a Christian life. Forgive us where we fail you. Lord, sharpen us and make us a people that bring honor and glory to your name. And if there's a lost person here, someone who has not made a committed um, move to be in relationship with you through the work of Jesus, through the word, Lord, I pray that this morning would be the day of salvation for them. We pray blessing on this congregation and all at home watching who could not be here with us uh, today. Lord, we pray protection over them. And Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's stand together as we have a time of invitation.